Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Grace and peace. Welcome back to our classroom. It's not Taco Tuesday, but we are talking taco literacy. I'm joined today by Stephen Alvarez, an associate professor of English at St. John's University. He specializes in literacy studies and bilingual education with a focus on Mexican immigrant communities. Dr. Alvarez teaches courses ranging from autobiographical writing, ethnographic methods, creative writing, and taco literacy, a course exploring the foodways of Mexican immigrants in the United States. Dr. Alvarez is the author of Brokering Tareas, Mexican Immigrant Families Translanguaging Homework Literacies and Community Literacies on Confianza, learning from bilingual after-school programs. Dr. Alvarez is also the author of three books of poetry. His book, The Codex Mahaudicus, was the winner of the 2016 Fence Modern Poets Prize. With us today, Stephen Alvarez. Peace, 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 people. Yes, welcome back. And today I'm with Stephen Alvarez. Thank you, sir, for joining me. I am excited to hear about your experiences and to dig into taco literacy, which is somewhat of a new term for me. I mean, I've been checking out some of your content, following stuff on Twitter and, and other pages, but I'm, I I still have room to grow in terms of my own taco literacy, even though I did live in Austin, Texas for seven years. I, you know, I've been able to explore the, the scene out there. But in following some of your work, I've come to an understanding that there's much more than meets the eye when it comes to taco literacy. And there's also a lot of history and culture connected to it that many folks might not necessarily know about. And so I'm eager to learn from you, Stephen, and I'm glad that you could join me today in our classroom. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here and uh, to share the love of Mexican food waste and Mexican people with your audience and hopefully bring it back to the classroom. Absolutely. I, I got love for my Mexican folks. Um, seven years in Texas, you know, I'm, I met a lot of people from Mexico, from Sonora, from... Uh, Ciudad Mexico, from Juarez, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks from all over the place. And it's interesting learning about all the differences in Mexico. And, you know, I'll, you know, I think sometimes things are painted mainstream wise that like, all right, you know, like, well, there's just Mexico and everything's the same. But even when it comes to tacos, right, and, and taco culture, all these places have their their differences and their nuance and their flavor and their history and their culture that they they bring to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so let's let's dig right in. You teach taco literacy at, at St. John's University in New York. What is taco literacy, and why should people be interested in this topic? I think if you actually just go back to what you described as your experience in Texas, 
which used to be Mexico. And before, you know, Texas was its own country, too. And that's the place where, uh, you say, the immigrants came in and took over. And that's what happens, as they say, when they come in, they're going to take over. But in the meantime, there was, you know, there's that history. But the way you describe being around Mexican people, first and foremost, and through us, you learn about our food because you can't love the food if you don't love us. And when you love the us, you love the food more, too. And the same thing to think about literacy. I don't think about literacy as something people have or don't have. Because that'll dehumanize the people who are, quote unquote, illiterate, that we have literacy practices and the practices are expressions of our genius, not to be measured by scholastic aptitude necessarily, but by kind of knowledge that's transmitted sometimes to children through ancestors, through food, through rituals, through song and through artwork. Well, so the way I think about language is it's a, a mode of expression of our genius. And I think about food is the same way, but it always comes back to people people and social relationships and how we form communities, how we make ourselves stronger, how we sustain ourselves. And so for taco literacy, and I should preface this, that my research was initially in bilingualism among Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants in New York City, but also in Kentucky. And so when I started doing this research, you know, I was helping little kids with their homework. And when you're helping little kids with their homework, especially English language homework, the moms can't really do that. And they see you. They see you the way they see their kids. And you see them and, and it's a way of a connection where Moms want to bring me food. They want to bring me tamales. Uh, and, and the dads too, sometimes the dad, the, the division of labor is the dad does the grilling, the carne asada, and the mom does some other kind of work. But, yes, they both yes. to, but it was always this idea that we're making community. We see you because you see us. And these, this food is an expression of what I can give you. And this food has ancestry behind it. It has tradition. It has knowledge. It has technique. But most importantly, it was made by my hands for you. And it's a kind of thanks. And I also theorize this is a kind of form of confianza. It's the way we develop community and we develop confiance with people we eat with, people we trust, and people we know we can have confidence in as well. And so to, to bring it all back together, the, the taco literacy for me was really thinking about the stuff I was initially trying to do with literacy studies and having this idea. It was really a breakthrough that food and foodways have very similar techniques of thinking about literacy, knowledge, the transmission of knowledge, and the way we can think about the way we can read a culture in this way. But more importantly for me, I guess the way I was thinking about another avenue for scholars of literacy to think about the knowledges our students bring from their communities. So to really start thinking about like family recipes, uh, family foods, rediscovering those foods, thinking about diet, foodways and production and also marketing. I mean, there's so much rich material for us who are language arts teachers to really consider. And so I think I was uh, trying to make the connections, what I saw in literacy and what I saw in foodways. And when I realized you can do all this with a taco. And read a taco and it branches out in all these directions. But again, ultimately it comes about to Mexican people. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. When when you see you you had said something along the lines of when you when you see us or when you see me, you see them. No, I'm paraphrasing, but can you say that again? Because I thought yeah. that's that's an important point for us to me, stick yeah, with. Yeah, I can I can give you the the uh the story that I remember, and maybe it's best to talk to describe this as a story. All right. And so I was a graduate student at uh, City University in New York, and my research was a, an after-school program uh, organized by Mexican Mexican people, poblanos, people from Puebla. Uh, it was in a church basement. There was no funding. In the wintertime, people were wearing blankets. There was sometimes mice running on the floor. But every week, three times a week, families were bringing their little kids to make sure that they got mentors who were bilingual to help them with their homework. And so because it was cold, moms were bringing champurado, which is a kind of hot atole chocolate, and they would bring food. And for me, going for several years, it became my book called Brokering Tareas. 
SUNY Press, when that drop. Uh, when I was there, it was, of course, a lot of times we would have celebrations and food would be involved. And always there would be special packages families would make for me. But there was one mom in particular, and I remember she would give me these, of course, I'm a starving graduate student, and I would just eat them right there. And the, the smile of satisfaction on her face, watching me eat and enjoy myself was a way for her to say, now I finally know a way that I can thank him. And I know he's really appreciated. Thanks. So she was always telling me, thank you, shaking my hand and everything. But I think she felt like maybe she didn't show me enough that she saw me and what I was doing with her kid. I was volunteering. Uh, and so when I, you know, later on upon reflection, I started thinking like that, that tamal was a tamal, but that tamal was also love. That was in my hands to you. And thank you. Thank you for seeing us. Cause we, for many of those families living in the shadows, as it were, people didn't see them and never saw them. Mm-hmm. There were too many times to be dehumanized, but something about food that links us is a common humanity and humanize one another. That is to say that, you know, there's so many people who, uh, say things about Mexican folks, you know, you're in Texas or you stay in yes. the whole country, right? Any Latinx or any immigrants rather, right? But when you see somebody eye to eye and you see their face, when they're no longer faceless, it's so hard to dehumanize them. It's almost impossible unless you're heartless. And I believe most of these people in this country, despite all their problems right now, we have heart and we will, we will, we will accept people if we see their humanity. We see that natural disasters and things all the time. And so for me, it was the the humanizing factor what I saw in the research I was doing was all about people and the kind of generation of confiance I was describing before. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And essential, essential for us to see each other, to to be in proximity, to to value each other as human beings and to grow in community. And a lot, no, I'm hearing a lot of focus on community here in, in what you're sharing. And so <laughs> let, let's talk about taquerias because taquerias are, I think, you know, we see taquerias in all types of communities all across the country. And so how are taquerias more than just about tacos, regardless of where you are in the United States? Sure. I mean, first off, that you use the term taqueria and how that becomes a part of the English parlance. Because, you know, put it this way. One of my lessons for students is we look at Google Maps and then we look up the word tacos. And then, you know, see all the the sites that pop up and you're going to get like Taco Bell, of course, and you're going to get some of those chains. Right. But when you change the term to Spanish and you look up the taqueria. You look up Mercado, then you're going to see where the Mexican folks live. That's and right. Outside the center of the city, right? So you'll see all the places that are named in Spanish. And that's also going to be things where you'll see like Tacaria Jalisco, Tacaria Sinaloense. Like you said before, different regions bring their different traditions. Because just like we were thinking about United States, there's Southern food, there's Midwest food, there's food from the Rockies, which mean different ingredients grow in different places. There's different traditions of migration patterns. Same thing with Mexico. In the sense that a taco that you would get in Jalisco would be very different than a taco you might get from Puebla. Very different ingredients, different climates, different history, different patterns of migration. So when you start looking at taquerias, you can start first narrowing it down to the Mexican community wherever you live, whatever your city, regardless in this country. I used to live in Kentucky. You will find taquerias in the holler. I'm talking like an Appalachia. And those Chicanos are there, the Appalachicanos over there. <laughs> but you start to see is that, for example, you start to see the Mexican community on one thing, and then the, the sheer diversity in the Mexican community, where people are coming from all different areas. So you start to learn more about migration patterns, history, the foods. But here's the trick. If you really want to know community, you got to start talking to folks. And sometimes, you know, folks will speak English, uh, especially if you spend money, <laughs> you know. And I feel like once you start learning about your taqueros and your taqueras is when you start really understanding why people come here. And also, like I mentioned before, the, the mom who had that huge smile on her face when I was enjoying my food. 
and to be able to hear a taquero and the pure joy and passion they have for the job, it's it's really inspiring. And it's also one of those kind of jobs where, you know, I feel like uh, it can become a very, very easy to become an art form if you see a really talented taquero. And so for me, I guess the, the best way we could bring it all back together is that a taqueria and the taco itself has layers of history has layers of meaning. It has linguistic aspects. You can look up the etymology of words, for example, which is also a fun thing to do because you'll find words that have their origin comes from Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, like avocado, for example, tomato. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> not, not, not all our words come from Europe. <laughs> you know, like, you know, but, but also in, in this case, you can start to think about, right, well, this taco is like delicious and there has like aspects of ingredients, but there's, how you say, there's so much more to examine in a taco. And if you examine the taco, you, you ultimately you examine people. And really, um, the wealth of our nation, um, food ways wise, is, is one thing about the abundance of food that we've had. But it's also the people who have come to this country who have transformed the food radically. Every immigrant group has contributed to what this country is, where our mainstream American food, so to speak. That's right. So to speak, that even Mexican food, where you can, fajitas or like nachos, you can go to a sports bar, you can get those now. And so that becomes quintessentially a kind of an American food as well. And the taco, you know, there are American kind of tacos. And so we could talk more about that. But then the taco then takes on the, the nature of where it travels because the people travel with it. That's great. That's great. You know, talking about words, one of my favorite words that I picked up while I lived in Texas was huachateria. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's like, yeah. We were out there and we like, Washateria. Like, <laughs> yo, they're really working it. You know, we uh, work in the, the dictionary out here. I love it. I love, you yeah. know, la- last week, Lorena, myself, and Tiffany Jewel, we were just, you know, working on exercise. Like, hey, you know, let's let's make up a new word today. Yeah. Uh, everybody take a turn. And that, that's cool. My uh every time I think of the term washateria, I'm like, Soft spot for my people, my Mexicanos que están en Texas. Yeah, you know, but I live here in New York, and words I've learned from me were lonchear, parquear, and this is the Boricua, right? So this is what we do. You know, we, we take the words, that, and also the next generation sometimes, because they're bilingual. Yes. And what's beautiful about this is when you're bilingual, poetry becomes natural to you. You know, you can play with language. You can have fun. You can laugh at it. You can come up with new words just by the way they sound. You can combine two different languages that have two different sound systems to come up with something that's inherently new and poetic and beautiful. Sandwich. Sandwich. No, igual. <laughs> you know, and then check this out. And in Mexico, I, get, I go to Mexico and then, you know, I'm hanging out with my cousins and they want to go buy some chelas or beers. <laughs> and they call it an un six. Vamos a comprar un six. Uh, <laughs> Which I'm like, all right. So hey. it goes both ways. <laughs> That's great. That's great. All right. So what are your thoughts on the relationship between politics, immigration policies, and the rise of taco culture in different places around the country? You know, well, this is where it gets kind of complicated because I'm thinking about uh, number 45 when he came down the escalator. And the very first group he pointed out is he's talking about Mexicans. You know, my, my hint thing, he says they're bringing drugs, they're bringing rapists. I mean, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing rapists, and some of them, I assume, are good people. Wow. So I have to bring that part back. It's like, well, you know, all of them are good people, and some might be bringing drugs, and some might be rapists too. But you can't, the projection was like, I assume some are good people. But the idea was like to dehumanize this faceless mass of people who are coming in hordes to take over our country. Right? 
Now, I already described Texas earlier before, <laughs> but the thing this, about that, that could be a whole podcast episode. Right? Oh, yeah. There's many podcasts and books about all this for sure. But, you know, I, I guess what I would you know, to get at this is that the, the immigration is such a hotly politicized issue that it's so easy to slip into an us and them dichotomy. And the them is always a faceless dehumanized dehumanized mass of criminals who are coming to invade for some politicians right in the meantime there is the separation of families as a policy there is a kind of inherent degradation of people who are undocumented and exploited in this country when all they ever came here because they want to dream because they believe in what this country has taught the whole world that this country people come to this country because they love this country and what this country has promised people for generations, they leave where they're coming from for a reason. And what's very strange about this is sometimes immigrants are, why don't you just love us the way we love you? And we all we came here is because we want to make this place better too, you know? And so to really start thinking about this in terms of tacos, because even the people who really dislike Mexicans, they love our food. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes the most racist ones love our food so much. Right. This guy, Tucker Carlson, was calling tacos American food. I'm like, hold on, Tucker. Yeah, yeah, slow, slow down. down. Slow yeah. down. Well, Tucker, come on. How, now, you know? how are we defining American? <laughs> you know, exactly. But, you know, I'm, 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 and so to get at this, it's just this idea that, all right, you can't love the food if you don't love the people. Because that's an expression of the people. And in fact, the food tastes much better if you love us. So the rise of taco culture, you know, all these people, uh, and definitely I would give a lot of credit to Anthony Bourdain for this. And some of those food folks who really were likable and they were going and getting the stories and making sure that the people who were in the shadows had a spotlight on them and making sure they used their platform to give a spotlight to immigrant folks as chefs and as cooks with dignity. That did a lot for folks who start thinking about, you know, our immigrant neighbors, they're doing some really cool things in their kitchens and not just cheap food, cheap eats where you go and pop in and you leave, but more like, I want to know more about your culture and I can learn more about your culture through your food and I can learn through your food, but hopefully learn more about your culture as well and your history. And then ostensibly why you came to this country and what this country has done and how it's transformed. And so the the politics on one hand are anti-immigrant. But through food is sometimes a way to reach people who have those kind of leanings. And so I preface this back because when I first arrived at the University of Kentucky, my very first job, I wasn't doing foodways. I was teaching a class. So uh, University of Kentucky is in Lexington, Kentucky. But and there's a barrio where the horse farms are called Mexington. Guess who lives there? <laughs> and so anyway, I was teaching a class called Mexington, Kentucky. And I was inviting dreamers to class and we were looking at immigration policy, faith-based community, uh, aspects of like resistance and, and um, social, how do you say, uh, social resistance, but also like ways where people were doing like um, uh, activist work. So social, you know, religious activist work. Anyway, um, some of the students weren't going for it. This is before Trump. And they had a hard time really kind of reasoning about like folks who come here and don't get in line. This is Kentucky. So the race lines were like black and white and having brown folks in between, it was kind of complicated, you know, because there was black folks who hadn't understand it. White folks didn't understand it as well. And it was kind of a complicated, divisive issue. Well, at the very end of the semester, I took the students around the barrio, you know, the cowboy store and <laughs> all these places like that. And I took them to get tacos at a taqueria and everything was in Spanish. And they saw things on the menu like sesos, lengua, carnitas. And they had only ever been there like Qdoba. Or something like this, right? And all of a sudden, they were just like amazed. And they made the corn. Excuse me, the corn came from a, a farm not too far from the taqueria, and they made their own nixtamal tortillas there. So Kentucky corn tortillas, delicious. And the students had all these questions, like, how do they make these tortillas? 
Where does this come from? How do they do this? And then I realized like, oh, now they're curious about us. Before, the immigration policy stuff was not making them interested. They want to know about this food. And I realized NAFTA is the reason why this food is here. The Mexican people are raising this food is here. The immigration policies are the reason why this people are here. And I realized if I go through Mexican food, I can reach their hearts and hopefully transform the way they think about us. Because the push, the immigration issue is so politicized and diverging. It's hard to have one side where you go to find people to meet halfway in the middle. And have those conversations and hopefully to see that this food is really about people first and foremost. And so the the idea was like taking something very political and bringing it to something that folks can see that they already love, but realizing that the thing that they love has been decontextualized from the people. And then our job in the classroom is making sure we bring it back to the people so they can see the food has dignity, but more importantly, the people have dignity. Yeah, you're going to need to make a T-shirt that says you can't love the food if you don't love the people. Hey, I mean... To me, that's the mantra of my class. That's what taco literacy is. And that goes for every kind of food there is. Once the food gets decontextualized from people, it's like, let's say fast food, then you start to lose the tradition of the African-American culinary tradition, Jewish food ways. I mean, all the different groups that came in to make this country what it is, we all brought that stuff with us. But first and foremost, we came as people. You know what I appreciate about your approach? And I'm not sure, I, I haven't seen this a lot on the higher ed level, but you're talking about reaching their hearts, right? Because you're working on the high ed level. That seems to be a more common talk amongst K through 12 educators. I just, I, I haven't. Maybe maybe folks are talking like that on higher ed level, but I haven't heard it as much. And so, you know, maybe that might be the case, but also like a lot of my work, my research, because I was working with families and after school programs was at K through 12. And there was folks, I believe that, you know, um, folks, you know, like Django Paris, and David Kirkland, and they're the ones that really got me to start thinking about listening. Yolanda Silly Reese, how to listen with my heart and how to think of myself as literacy of the heart. And of course, we have folks like Paulo Freire. And most importantly for me, I'm the you know, first one in my family to go to college. My mom came from Mexico. My father, well, his father came during the Mexican Revolution a while back. And for me, I do this stuff because it wasn't until I went to college that I really got learned how to love myself about that part of my culture. I grew up in Arizona and they do a number on making you hate yourself as a Mexican. I mean, I feel like the whole country's in Arizona these days sometimes. But for me, it was the liberation I had when I got to read Mexican-American authors. And I got to read that and learn about myself and take Mexican-American studies. And most importantly, I went to Arizona, University of Arizona. I went like Southside Tucson. I had real tacos. I'm talking from Sonora. And that was all of a sudden we're like, whoa, what is this? And I went back and asked my family, can you teach me more about this? I came back to my family, but only because I went to college. You see what I'm saying? Wow. And that for me was something that was really beautiful because it changed my life. So much so that here I am a professor now, you know, and, and for me, I'm very genuine when I bring this to my classroom about how education transformed my life and also potentially how it can transform others. But it's also not something that's just about the head. It's about the heart, too. They go in tandem. Yes. The best part about me that, you know, in my classes is I love teaching. I mean, give me academia, higher ed stuff, not always my bag. But when it comes to the students, and especially when I have students of color, the Latinx students, and the Mexican-American-American students, uh, because we never get to feel our, you know, sometimes we don't get to feel that we're in the center of the stage. And so me to make it a point that, you know, we teach authors of color, we focus on scholars of color. So this way, students can understand that we have traditions, too. 
That's deep. That's deep. I love it. I love it. And uh, thanks for sharing a little bit of your story in terms of how going to college inspired you to go back to your family and learn more about your family history. And also for stressing the point and the importance of seeing yourself reflected in the curriculum, um, which is something I'm actually going to be talking about, you know, in the next couple of days at a conference. So uh, thank you for sharing that. In your recent CNBC interview, you stated rather than look for what's authentic, let's just look for what's there. What did you mean by that? Oh, this thing about like people looking for a quote unquote authentic Mexican food is problematic for all the various ways. And I'll say it because sometimes what happens, especially with like the, the rise of food journalism and food bloggers and things, it might be people going into immigrant neighborhoods, going to get cheap eats, trying to find something, you know, that seems quote unquote authentic. Usually it means going to a place where the people speak a different language, uh, a neighborhood sort of like outside the city, city center. And where things, uh, you know, where you can feel like there's not a lot of white people. That is an authentic experience. In the meantime, though, they get their food and they leave, get their food, take their picture and take off, parachute in and parachute out. And so that is problematic for all kinds of reasons that that's their form of authenticity. Like, let's go see what it's like to eat like an immigrant for a little while to have an authentic immigrant experience. Meanwhile, we're going to go back home. So this is what I'm saying. Sometimes this quest for authenticity, you're never going to find a quote unquote original. It's just, it's not there. It doesn't exist. What you'll find are folks who are making constructions of what is authentic, right? But really, if you just go and meet your neighbors, talk to them, like that food is authentic. And it may be born in Texas, born and raised in Texas, but that's authentic too. Even to the degree, I think the Taco Bell taco is authentic in its own, authentically American fast food, but authentic in its own way, you know? And so even that taco has a kind of value of way of understanding what it means, and so the larger question was like getting away from this notion of authenticity and starting thinking about like doing the exploration and find out what makes your place unique where you live. And that's a little bit of a different question, unique rather than authentic. So your issue is more of the approach. I think so. You know what I mean? Because when folks have this idea of authenticity, it doesn't mean they get to really know their neighbors and it doesn't always necessarily mean they get to know the people behind the food. Because if you go into a neighborhood, it's very different than spending time there or going into your own neighborhood and getting to know your own neighborhood. Let me bring this back to a sort of another example where this kind of became very clear for me is uh, when I was doing my research with that uh, after school program, many of the students, uh, you know, they lived in the barrio, but their teachers were white and the teachers didn't live in the barrio. Like they would never live in the barrio, right? They would come in and teach and they go back to where they live, right? And so I was reaching out to these teachers and I realized I was spending more time in this barrio than these teachers. Like, I'm not just talking about in the classroom. I'm talking about like going around to the grocery stores, like checking out the thrift stores and all the things like that is something that folks weren't necessarily doing so much so that people in the community were saying hello to me when I was walking down the street. And so there's a different way of an approach where you can, you know, you can come in and have the food, but if you get to know the people and people get to know you, it's a very different, rich experience. So sometimes this authenticity can be a thing where folks just want to have the food, but don't get to know the people or the community. No, that's real. That's real. And, and in the spirit of transparency, I, I've definitely have used that language in the past. And especially in thinking of the context of the local spots, the mom and pop spots versus a Taco Bell. And, and I heard you talk about it in the documentary. I'm like, listen, I'm still not messing with Taco Bell. But <laughs> for me, you know, part part of my thing is like I I like connecting with people. I like hearing and understanding their stories. It's, 
I guess you use the term exploration, you know, and part of it for me is, is exploring the culture, the people, uh, obviously through the food, but at the end of the day, getting to understanding of how'd you end up here? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what, why did you end up here? Why this particular spot, right? I'm from Lawrence, Massachusetts. I'm Dominican American, born and raised Lawrence, Massachusetts. I don't know if you've been in Lawrence, but like, when when folks ask me where I'm from and I tell them, I'm like, yeah, I'm from Lawrence, Massachusetts. It has the highest population of Dominicans outside of New York City. They're always like, what? Like blown away. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, it blows me away too. I don't know why they picked that spot. <laughs> I mean, I do. I do. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. When I think about migration patterns, I'm like, wow, of all places, all the way up there? Mm-hmm. Where it's mad cold and it's yo, we Dominican. You'd be surprised, you know. I mean, Mexicans similar way, you know, different numbers. Um, but like some of the biggest places for population growth are in the, the uh, Dakotas, um, like Wyoming. Um, like it's places where Mexicans haven't been, but we're still going now, you know. And it also has to do with the industries that surround. And so it's it's really interesting to think about, like, where, you know, not only where folks put it this way, the. Uh, I believe the second largest, the third largest Mexican population in the country is in Chicago. And they've been there a long time. Oh, that must have been some rough winners from the people that came from Jalisco up there. But now that's who they are. They are a Chicago Mexican community and they're large. And there are many folks, you know, kids who grew up there who never go to Mexico. And they'll identify as Chicago Mexican. In the same way you're describing to be, to be Dominican in New York is very different to be Dominican in Massachusetts, to be from Dominican in Florida. And the food changes too. And the food changes too. So there's so much so that that cuisine that was Dominican has a little bit different flavor in New York, a little bit different flavor in Massachusetts and also in Florida and also with the different groups who are around them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So always a fun part of the interview. If you had an opportunity to have a taco with any author that are alive, who would it be and why? Also, what kind of taco would you order? Oh, you know, maybe I can change the question around a little bit. Because, you know, like when Mexicanos, when we like to get like a celebration, we don't always just get one taco. Instead, we have a carne asada. <laughs> we're going to have a barbecue and then we're going to have a carne asada and pass around. So we're going to have a carne asada. We're going to do Sonoran style. And when you have a carne asada, you know, you got to invite a group of people. So I'm going to be like, all right, who are the authors I want to have with my carne asada? Well, the first one, probably James Baldwin. Yeah. You know, probably Tony Morrison. Pretty, pretty good. Octavia Butler. Philip K. Dick. Uh, I throw in. Uh, he'd be kind of awkward, but I bring in Samuel Beckett. He'd probably just by himself in the corner over here. <laughs> and then I think probably a couple folks. Let me see. Um, you know, uh, Villarreal, another good Mexican. So we need some Mexican folks there too. Right. And probably the last one I would really love to have a taco or be at the carne asada would be Anthony Bourdain. God, God bless. And I feel like that would be a pretty solid, uh, pretty solid crew to have a carne asada with. Wow, that's a lineup. That is a lineup. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's awesome. So. To those that are listening, what is a message of encouragement you want to offer them? Hmm. Keep your heads up. Keep your heads up. Keep forward. Adelante. And and especially as teachers, these, these are these are dark times. It's hard times. And to keep your head up, sometimes it takes three times as much effort. But the work is always there because we do it for the future. And when you pay it forward, you also realize that uh, if it's hard for us, for the students, it's even harder. And so for us keeping our heads up, it's kind of like a, I get a little bit emotional. It's a model for what we can do, what, what education should be in its best modes. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you. Where can folks follow you? You're doing great work. Mm. You got numerous books out. I think you got one coming out with Pink, if I remember correctly. Yeah. What, what can folks follow you and what should they be looking for from mm. Stephen Alvarez? Well, uh, I guess easiest one would be on Instagram at Stephen Paul Alvarez. And I have like a link tree there. You can find up all the interviews and stuff. And then um, probably the most recent thing, if you're on Netflix, there is a season three of Taco Chronicles, Taco Chronicles Cross the Border. And I'm on the New York episode and also the Phoenix episode. Um, both really touching. And, and that whole series is just great because just like I mentioned before, it focuses on the people and the stories of Mexicans in the USA. So definitely check those out. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Looking forward to checking out the Phoenix episode. Already saw the New York episode. Looking forward to checking out the rest of it. I appreciate you. Appreciate the work that you're doing. Adelante. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.